Okay, um, I'm so excited to be back on the RealMD podcast today and to have uh, a guest who we've interviewed in the past. Um, Corey Shaman is an MD, PhD student and part of the RealMD program. Corey, it's so good to have you back. Thanks, Tom. It's nice to be here. So today we're going to talk about, I think, one of your one of your passion projects that you've had as part of RealMD, and that is bringing storytelling to the you and um, to our medical students. Can you talk about like why we're doing storytelling? Yeah, absolutely. I love storytelling. I think it's such an important piece of community building. And I think given that that is a central aspect of RealMD, it's natural for us to have our own storytelling event and to be able to listen to both students and faculty tell their stories. And where does storytelling even come from? I mean, obviously, we're not the first people to try this. Yeah, I personally have been inspired by some of the other great podcasts and live events that are out there. Um, our storytelling event is based on the format of The Moth, which um, is both a podcast and has this live storytelling component. And in their live storytelling component, they ask people to tell five minute true to them stories on a theme. And we do the same here, but unlike the moth, we don't have judges, um, in, in, uh, as opposed to judges, we have a very supportive medical school community. And speaking of that community, what do you hope that storytelling does for us? I hope that it opens us up and reminds us that even though medical education can be a little bit selfish in that you have to really focus on building up your own skill set and ability, focus on yourself. At the end of the day, we're doing this because we're part of a community that needs a lot of help. And I think one of the ways in which we can help people is just by listening to them. That's great. And I appreciate so much this idea of uh, maybe sharing and connecting uh, while you're in medical school, but doing it in such a way that allows you to show who you are and talk about your life experiences in, a, in maybe a different format. Um, so for this episode, last February, you set a theme and then you put a call out. Can you talk about like how you set up this um, storytelling night? Yeah, the basic premise is that we had people tell about a five-minute story on a theme that was true to them and in which they were the central actor in their story. And our theme was in transit. Um, we set this up by inviting people with a message, and that message was to come listen or share stories uh, about arriving in unexpected places Perhaps people had stories about life taking unexpected turns or about meeting someone on the go. We asked people to tell stories about when three rights might have made a left or about a time where they were just passing through but made a little extra commotion. And uh, finally, we asked people to share stories they might have had about transporting important or secretive goods. Okay. Very intriguing. And I'm sure uh, even as you were writing that paragraph, you were probably thinking, how can I, you know, excite and prime the pump of what people might want to talk about? Um, so can you set up the first uh, story that we're going to hear? 
Yeah, absolutely. So our first story is by Charles Teams, who's now a fourth-year medical student at the School of Medicine. And his story, um, which you'll hear in just a moment, is about the time when he was tasked with transporting important people. He was specifically uh, unexpectedly a pilot for a day. My full name is Charles Robert Teams III. And so, of course, my father's name is Charles Robert Teams II. And aside from his name, I also inherited a few other things from him. One of them being is that he is unable to turn down free food. He actually like, eats a pretty strict diet. He doesn't eat pork or shellfish. He like generally avoids meat and like prefers organic foods. But like we're at like a wedding and there's like shrimp there, and he'll like just go at it like that. You don't eat shrimp, but it's free, <laughs> right? And I, I inherited that. I tried to resist it. But if you ever go to like the free food fridge at the uh, life sciences, but you know I'll always be there. Um, the other thing I inherited from him is a love of aviation. Um, he always wanted to be a pilot. He ended up as a nurse, but he's had a pilot's license for as long as I can remember. And just two years ago, he actually had the opportunity to fulfill his lifelong dream, which was he built a plane. He got together with some friends and they bought parts off the internet and pulled their money and, and built a plane. And they fly this thing like every weekend, whenever they get a chance. He's just like living his dream. And I definitely inherited that love of flying from him. We would always go to air shows and to flight museums. And like for my 16th birthday, my gift was I got to go and do some flight lessons in a little, little small plane. So it's always been a big, a big part of my life. I decided not to be a pilot because I was always afraid that I would kill a lot of people at once. I decided on medicine where you can only kill like one person at a time. <laughs> really messing. Um, but anyway, both of these, both of these passions of mine became relevant relatively recently. About two weeks before I was set to take step one. I get a call from my wife's uncle. My wife and her family are from Australia. And uh, my wife's uncle was a pilot in Australia for a commercial airline. And when COVID happened, he got laid off. So he actually managed to find a job here in Utah as a private jet pilot for a client here. And so we moved over here, got this job. And he calls me and he's like, hey, yeah, my client is going on vacation to Arizona with his family. Um, and there's gonna be there for the weekend. The issue is, is that the client's wife is terrified of flying um and like more specifically like she read the book hatchet as a kid and so she's like terrified of the idea that the pilot will die and the plane will go down because in in the private jet business the planes are certified in such a way that only one person can fly the plane you know you don't need two pilots like you do in the commercial space and she's terrified of this idea of having one pilot so what he needs is he needs somebody to pretend to be his co-pilot, <laughs> to be like the emotional support co-pilot for the client's wife. And so he calls me and he says, hey, yeah, mate, oh, how many flight hours do you have? And I'm like, oh, like six. And he's like, oh, yeah, fair income. That should, that should be convincing enough. <laughs> so I'm like, is this, is this legal, Brad? He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, it's really funny. <laughs> So I'm like, okay, like I'm a med student. I'm like an expert. I'm like pretending that I know how to do things. Like, <laughs> how to do um, so at 8 a.m. the plan is I'm going to show up at the hangar at 8 a.m. We're going to get in the plane. We're going to fly to Arizona. We're going to fly the client and his family out there. We're then going to take. We're going to like this small little private private jet airport. We're then going to take an Uber to the airport for normal humans, and we're going to fly. They're going to pay for us to fly commercially. Me and Brad. 
back to Utah. And then on Monday, Brad's going to fly back on a commercial airliner with his son back to Tucson, get in a private jet, and fly the family back. These are, I guess, the things you do when you have more money than God. Um, but that was the plan. And I was super stoked. I get to the hangar. It's this beautiful Phenom 300, state-of-the-art private jet with like, this black and purple paint job. And it's just, oh, it's gorgeous. Like, brand new avionics. I get in the plane, and like every seat is like jammed full of like snacks. And it's like, yes, free snacks and a beautiful jet, my two favorite things. And super excited. And Brad like shows me the cockpit and shows me where to sit. And he like pulls out these checklists that you have to do before a startup and taxi and takeoff and landing. And he's like, your job is to just read the checklist authoritatively. So I, got, I, can, I can do that. I can do that. So I sit in the front, the family comes, the wife comes and like scrutinizes me for a second, and I try to look very dignified and official, my Patagonia jacket, you know. Um, I read the check off, take off checklist, and off we go. And like, oh, incredible. Like, imagine, because I'd flown before, right? But like, imagine that like the very first time you ever like got into a car, it was like one of those like toy electric Jeeps. You know, you like drove around your best friend's like parking lot, you know? <laughs> and then the second car you ever got into was like an F1 Ferrari. That was like, that was what the experience was akin to. It was incredible. It was beautiful. Um, and we, we fly right over the Grand Canyon our way to Arizona. Just like perfect day, perfect conditions. And the final approach into this little private airport, there was this plateau. And so you drop over the plateau and it's just like clear as far as the eye could see. And I was just like having the time of my life. And I like thought of this line from the famous um, Studio Ghibli movie, The Wind Rises, where this famous airplane designer says, planes are not for making money or war. Planes are beautiful dreams. And I like start to cry <laughs> there in the cockpit, you know, because I'm just like, this is amazing. And right at that moment, my reverie is broken um, because the, the proximity alarm goes off. In a, in a jet, when there's traffic nearby, there's a proximity alarm that tells you, hey, you are in a potential collision course, and it tells you the direction you need to go. So there's this very loud, robotic, authoritative male voice that says, traffic, climb, traffic, climb. And it gets faster and faster until you, until you move. And so as a consequence, we're on our final approach to this airport, but we need to pull up. And so in order to make our final approach without having to loop around, after we pulled up to avoid a collision, we need to descend very quickly. And the way you accomplish that is hitting the air brake, which is perfectly safe to do. The issue in a small, fast private jet is it sounds like the plane's wings are being torn off. <laughs> and so understandably, the client's wife hears the sounds of like a thousand banshees at the side of the plane and this loud authoritative male voice saying something indecipherable and the co-pilot is crying. <laughs> and so she understandably starts screaming and grabs her son who's like in the middle of like a pouch of M&Ms and like shakes him back and forth and M&Ms like flying into the cockpit. And we, we land fine. Everything is fine. Brad's a very competent pilot. I pretended like everything was fine. I mean, everything was great. We land on the tarmac and the blistering Arizona heat in the middle of May. We get the family off of the plane. They get into their Cadillac Escalade and goes off to do whatever people who have more than money than God do on vacation. And the unglamorous part they don't realize about being like a private jet pilot is like, it's your job to like clean the plane. So like, it's our job to pick up all the M&Ms and like, you know, clean after the kids who like smeared peanut butter everywhere, you know, detail the plane. Um, and as we're like packing everything up, Brad turns to me and he's like, hey, like this plane's going to be like sitting in the there's on a heat for like the next three, four days. Like none of this is going to survive. So just like take whatever you want. And at that moment, I was like, I was tempted to resist being like my father. 
but I have just flown in a beautiful jet. And I made my father proud. I took every cookie, every candy, every bag of chips, every soda from that airplane. And I flew home to Utah to take step one. There's not really a moral to this story. But I did learn some things about myself that day. And one is that we'll never be too old to find airplanes really, really cool. And two, I will never be too dignified to turn down free food. <laughs> Corey, who is up next? Next up, we have a story by Dr. Kelsey Burrell, who's a faculty member and neurologist here at the university. So a quick aside from the waist down, Steve and I are matching. So it's kind of a fun little thing. I don't know if anybody noticed. So some of you might know, I used to be a neurologist. Um, I could care, connect, diagnose, and on a good day, I'd leave it all behind at work. Um, but then I became a caregiver. So when my three-year-old son started becoming sleepy, I just figured he was a pandemic victim. Um, I had just gotten over COVID the week before. But at his sister's first birthday, he didn't show any interest in the chocolate cake. He wouldn't stand up to pee. And the neurologist in me kept saying, you know what, this is non-focal, it's fine. But later that night, actually, his COVID test came back negative. And at first I was relieved for like half a second and then this foreboding. So we went to the ER that night and um, we struck out with, with a probable viral infection written across the discharge summary. So the next time we went to the ER, two days later, I did something I don't like to do. I pulled the doctor card and I pulled it hard. So I told them what I wanted and how I wanted it. I wanted a CAT scan of his head followed by a lumbar puncture in that order, stat please. And I always say please, so that made me, you know, a little better than a tiger mom, <laughs> doctor mom. Um, and I'll never forget when the ER resident walked into our room, he had this um, hesitation and it seemed to last for a really long time before he said, I'm sorry to say we're not gonna get a lumbar puncture. The CAT scan is abnormal. And I kind of dissociated from the room, from my body, as he started to scroll through my son's images and almost hurled when I saw this non-subtle baseball-sized mass in his brain. And he proceeded to go through a rather exhausting differential diagnosis, but I kind of flashed to the point, neuro flat, you know, board prep before my eyes. This location, this age could only mean one thing. And never did I think as a neurologist, I would be diagnosing my own son with brain cancer. You can see where this is going, but it's actually not a sad story. Why? <laughs> you might ask you. Um, it has all the right elements, right? It's not a sad story because as a family, we chose for it not to be a sad story. So Wesley really went through it this last year. He had major brain surgery. He had six weeks of radiation, some really cruel three months of chemotherapy. He had to learn how to walk twice and developed chemotherapy-induced neuropathy, lost all his hair, most of his hearing, developed seizures. Yes, it sucked. It really 
really, really sucked. But we had a mission. Our goal was to make this fun for Wesley. And at first, it seemed impossible to not sink into despair. There are definitely moments of dark despair. But the more we tried, our world kind of changed. And it all started with reframing. So the hospital, Primary Children's, became the play hospital. And this was a place where you could do whatever, whenever, which is not something most parents should ever say. So mac and cheese for breakfast? I love it, Wesley. Moana at midnight? Sounds like a great plan. We would stay in touch with friends and family because we spent most of the time in the hospital last year um, by FaceTiming a lot. And he'd play his favorite game of hide and go seek, which involved him hiding under the covers on his hospital bed again and again while whoever's on FaceTime pretended to look for him. <laughs> and he didn't have many options to go elsewhere because he was tethered to the IV pole, especially since he had pulled out his IV pole and leaked chemotherapy through um, across our room twice while dancing to Thriller, I like to add. <laughs> it's his favorite song. Um, and we played so hard. We played with bubbles and kinetic sand. I didn't know that was a thing. I didn't know you could blow bubbles indoors, especially in the hospital. Carly Pivot probably knew that, but I didn't. Um, there are construction trucks and dinosaurs and little awkward kid scissors and construction paper. And um, we really transformed those hospital walls that sometimes were dark and scary. And I think kids are really onto something. Imagination can be mind altering, I'll tell you. But, um, you know, what really struck us is one of the last days, um, one of the last discharges, unprompted, he said to us, it's a perfect day to be alive. And then he went on and said, I'm happy to go home but I'm gonna miss my friends at the play hospital. You know, when you love a human being, you hate to let them go. And I realized the child psychologist we'd been seeing that whole year was really right. He told us that kids with cancer don't develop PTSD, their parents do. And emotionally speaking, this kid of mine had never been better, which could not be said for his parents. Um, you know, a lot of well-intending friends and family would ask us, how, how are you guys getting through this? And the answer was simple. What choice did we have, right? Um, you just do what you can do every day. And um, we made a decision, a choice, to look not at what we wanted to change in life, but to look at what was going well. And we wrote, refocused on that because the thing is, our lives don't exist in this kind of metaphysical compass. We get to choose what our North Star is. And, um, you know, people like to talk about silver linings a lot. And there's a great movie called Silver Linings. Um, but I think the thing with silver linings, what I believe is the silver lining is that you're even thinking about or looking for a silver lining. It's knowing that there's a lot of clouds out there, but squinting and looking for the light anyways. And that's something 10 years of neurology could have never taught me. Uh, next, we have a story by uh, one of my fellow MD-PhD students, Steve Cho.
So there are a few classical music pieces that are instantly recognizable, like Locker Bell's Canon or Beethoven's for Elise. But the problem with classical music and jazz and other instrumental genres is you just can't really search that song that you're hearing or that, or that you know, you've heard. And like, like songs with lyrics, you can, you can type in, you don't, on Spotify, you don't need to know the name of the song, you just type in the lyric, a butchered lyric that you heard, and it, and it pops out. You just can't do that with, with instrumental music. And I've been playing piano for about 25 years now, and um, I've studied composition in college, and I'm still not immune to this dilemma. And fortunately, I have a friend that I can contact in these, in these times, you know, who's like a repository of classical music. And the problem is not, not everyone has a friend like that. And, and I used to listen to a lot of music. And I, I used to listen to a lot of music because I was trying to get inspired from my own compositions. And I, I loved writing music. Um, I'm not someone who can very easily verbalize my feelings. Ask any of my exes. <laughs> but with music, I thought it was a really great medium for me to encapsulate how I was feeling for a moment in time. And that came very naturally to me, and I, and I loved it. I loved writing music. But I realized at some point that I probably couldn't make a living writing music. So I, I had to switch gears a little bit. And so during some soul searching, I worked as a, as a lab tech. And, and I, I, I tried writing a little music here and there. Um, and it was really difficult because it's one of those things where once you stop, it's hard to pick back up. And, it takes a lot of time and a lot of emotional energy to invest. And I felt like I really didn't have that anymore. And once I got to med school, that was all but over. I thought I was you know, never writing music ever again. Um, I had no time. Um, and let's face it, type one collagen isn't very inspirational. <laughs> And so that brings me to last winter break. And I was in Japan for, for two weeks. And um, we got around a lot using the trains. And everything you've heard about Japanese trains is true. They're, you know, um, like insanely punctual. And it's, it's, it's a phenomenal way, way to get around. And the cool thing about these, these Japanese trains is that every train station has its own like, kind of tune and jingle that someone writes. And this one composer, he writes all these tunes to try and you know, capture the spirit or essence of that station. It's really cool. Had I known about that job, I would not be in med school. <laughs> but I was on the train from Kanazawa to Kyoto, and I heard this little tune, and I, I instantly realized that I've probably heard this tune somewhere at some point in my life, in some setting or whatnot, 
but I just could not figure out what it was. And I spent hours and hours and hours trying to figure out what this piece was. I was searching Spotify and YouTube. I was searching every iteration of composer and instrument and, and, and genre, concertos, sonatas, oratorios, prelude and fugues. And I couldn't, I couldn't figure it out. And with each search, I, I became more certain that that was the one, but it wasn't. And I get so frustrated. And I, and I brought this frustration back to me overseas to Utah. And I, I couldn't sleep, which was terrible because I was so jet lagged. I couldn't sleep trying to figure out what this piece was. And so I called out my friend, Nina. And I called her and I said, Nina. What's this piece? And, and, I, and I played it for her on the piano, and she says, Steve, it's 3 a.m., go to bed. <laughs> and so she calls me back when she's in a better mood in the morning. And she says, hey, I've been thinking about it, and I have no idea what it is. And, and that, was, that was my last effort. I was, I was, I was ready to lose my mind. And then she says, why don't you write it down? And I was like, oh, that's a good idea. Um, like maybe writing it down will jog some memories. So, so I wrote it down. I wrote it down. And it was a really fun little tune. And so I put some harmonies to it. And there was this little motif that I really enjoyed, so I, I kind of expanded it a little and, and made like a contrasting theme. And I added other instrumentation, and I was having a lot of fun with it. I had all these ideas, like, oh, like I'm going to put this into a, like a Sonata Allegro form. I finished the exposition. I was developing the themes. And to this day, I still cannot tell you the tune, the name of the tune that was stuck in my head. But I can tell you that I've started writing music again. And to close us up here, who's our last storyteller? Dr. Fran Fiu is our last storyteller for this episode. All right, here we go. When I am uh, seven years old, I am shipped off to France to spend the summer with my grandparents. During a dreamlike flight, I'm flanked by two beautiful blonde flight attendants who, as far as I can tell, their only role in life is basically to take care of me. <laughs> I end up in this huge anteroom, uh, Paris Airport, I think. There's just people everywhere. And I become aware of this um, very elegant, well-dressed gentleman. He's elderly. He's got this gray suit, a vest, a hat, kind of like out of the movies. And he's kind of waving at me very shyly, smiling, and all of a sudden I'm there with him, like I've been transported through the crowd. And he takes me to this patisserie, which means a pastry shop, and he buys me two chocolate eclairs. And these are like, this is like the best thing that has ever happened to me in my entire short life. At that point, I realized the beauty of existence and how much I love my grandfather. My grandparents' house um, 
or home and its surroundings is like a wonderland for a boy like me from San Diego. Um, behind the house, my grandfather tends this huge, beautiful garden. It's really long and very narrow. And at the very back in the recess of the garden, past the raspberries and the compost pile and the vines and the weeds, is a rickety gate that opens onto this like land of enchantment. There's like lush green everywhere. There are immense trees that shed this kaleidoscopic light. There's our own path, our own brook that leads to these prairies and deep forests with huge gnarled oaks. It's just amazing. Um, but I realized soon that this is actually not the reason I'm here. Um, see, back in those days, I had really bad asthma. And my grandmother, bless her heart, had gotten it in her mind that I needed to go on what they call in France a cure, which literally means a cure. And what this process involved is they would, um, you would go to this, I guess, a spa-like place, a famous location where there was, you know, like special mineral water and things like this. And this would basically purge you of all of the noxious elements that were the cause of your ailments. So it was deemed that I should go with my grandparents to the Mondo, which was a small town that had these uh, magical powers. Now, you know, I was seven going on eight, and I, believe me, I had no medical experience whatsoever. <laughs> but I had a pretty good notion that there was not a lot of high-quality medical evidence backing up this therapeutic approach. <laughs> um, I was subjected to a really interesting and bizarre array of uh, treatments. Um, I can see myself where like a group of really elderly people in these white terry cloth robes would be along. We're ushered into this huge room that's with stone walls and it's full of, of steam, like really thick steam. I can barely breathe. And then we have to do this sort of uh, group gargling experience where we <laughs> gargle with these special waters that kind of uh, imbue the palate with a sort of earthen, sort of metallic, sulfuric flavor. Um, I'm asked to bathe in these sort of tepid baths of mineral spirits. But the coup de grace, so to speak, is this experience where like outside, and us supplicants are, are asked to sit at these sort of um, stone carols or cubicles, I guess you could say. And out of the back of the cubicle is this long tube with a nozzle at the end. And I panic, in a panic, I realize that it is expected that I stick this thing up my nose and it immediately like infuses my nostril and my entire bronchial tree with this noxious caustic gas that basically has mostly sulfur and a lot of, not a lot of oxygen. That was not my favorite part. Um, after subjected to these tribulations, I'm then, you know, asked to carry out the typical French sort of therapeutic maneuver, which is basically I'm put in bed with layers of blankets for like hours with the goal of like sweating the living daylights out of me. <laughs> I didn't like that part too much either. Um, I don't remember the trip back home at all. I was at that point relegated back to the care of my parents, so it was a lot less exciting. Um, I'm at home, like I've been there two hours and I hear the doorbell ring. I go to the door, 
on the front porch is my friend Butch from across the street. Hey, can you come out to can you come out to play? He says. And all of a sudden I realized I cannot say a word of English. And I desperately think back to my grandparents, to the garden, to the path, to the eclairs. I conveniently forget the nasal insufflation with the toxic gas. And I desperately wish I was back in France. This episode of the Real MD podcast is produced and edited by Tom Hurtado and Ali Day. Special thanks to Scott Singpeel, Scope Radio, and University of Utah Health. The Real MD podcast is part of the Real MD program at the Spencer Fox Eccles School of Medicine at the University of Utah, which helps medical students find meaning, community, and purpose during their training and future careers. Our theme song, Energizer Bunny, is by my son's band, Hurtado. You can find our podcast on major platforms. Thanks for listening.